So tonight I'd like to talk about this is this talk is about the five spiritual faculties. And I like the fact that the understanding is that these five spiritual faculties as they develop and mature turn into the five spiritual powers that these are what carry us forward and that allow the practice to unfold. And these are wholesome qualities that we develop in our practice, that we, that you have already been developing. Just as you sit here and you come and you sit again and again, these factors are being developed. So as I talk this evening about them, I encourage you to recognize in yourself how this is being, is already here for you. And then you can see the opportunity for it to deepen. These five factors are faith or confidence is another word, and I'll explain that. Energy and effort is in there as well. Mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these flow from each other. Faith or confidence is the seed that we plant. And when we have this confidence in the practice, in moving forward, then we're willing to put in energy. We're willing to put in effort towards our practice. And when we put in effort, that leads to deepening and clarifying mindfulness. And the mindfulness leads to concentration. And the concentration allows a wisdom, allows wisdom to arise. The Buddha said this about this whole undertaking. He said, just as among all the heartwood fragrances, fragrances that of the red sandalwood is deemed best, so practitioners, among states that partake of enlightenment, the faculty of wisdom is deemed best, namely for the purpose of enlightenment. Which are the states partaking of enlightenment? The faculty of faith is a state partaking of enlightenment and leads to enlightenment. The faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom are all partaking of enlightenment and lead to enlightenment. And they are all leading towards wisdom. Wisdom is considered, there's a sutta that's called the footprint of the elephant. And it's that the wisdom is like the footprint of the element, elephant. And all the other ones are in there too. But we don't get to just jump to wisdom. We all know that discernment, another word for wisdom, is uh, of so much value. As so, it is a clarity to make decisions, to know what to do in our lives, to be responsive and kind. And all these other things support the development, the cultivation, and the expression of discernment or wisdom. So first, the one of faith. And the Pali word is sada. And it means to put your confidence in, to place the heart upon, is another translation. And what this is moving towards is a deep trust in awareness itself. That's where our faith is. The Buddha didn't talk about, he wasn't interested in blind belief. Belief is taking someone else's word for it and thinking that you need to go on that. The Buddha was interested in our learning to trust and have confidence in our ability to meet the moment, to meet it with sincerity and wise attention. And as we develop this confidence that we can meet 
the next moment. Then there's a way that the moments open up. We're not in retraction. We're not in fear. The confidence lets us know, I can do this, even when it's new and different. This is an excerpt from a poem by Wendell Berry, The Wild Geese. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandoned as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. So the confidence is an unfolding that what you need is here, that you can do this. Uh, writer, a Buddhist philosopher, Edward Kahn says, faith implies a resolute and courageous act of will. It combines the steadfast resolution that one will do a thing with the self-confidence that one can do it. You showed up here. That was an act of faith. And as you proceed through the days, as you sit another sit, you're cultivating your own confidence that you can do this. Every time we sit, that confidence deepens. This word faith isn't a final ending point or something you have to have and possess. It's a verb. It's an activity that we engage in again and again. Each time you come into the hall, you're expressing your faith, your confidence in what's possible. And it's said that the Buddha talked that suffering was the proximate cause of faith. Isn't that interesting? Because he pointed out that when we have suffering, If we see the possibility, if we see that we could move out of suffering, that we could be free of suffering, that possibility engenders faith, engenders a willingness to trust what we don't actually fully know, but to trust it enough to move forward. So faith, perhaps you can hear this in here, faith is balanced with wisdom, that final quality. Because faith, when it's not a, uh, like I said, it's not a belief. We keep doing a checks and balances. Is what, is my confidence working out? Is what I'm doing, is this response in the sit? You know, okay, I tried this. Is it working or is it not? It'd be silly to keep doing something that doesn't work, right? That's not helpful faith. We're building confidence. So you sit and you notice that you're wandering a lot. And you go, oh, if I get a little more intimate with the breath, if I pay closer attention with the body, then my mind settles a little more. Okay, so now you've moved from us making that suggestion and enough faith to give it a try to the experience of confidence that, oh, I can see how this works for myself. It's not hope. Hope has a incompleteness in it. It has kind of a fear that maybe it'll work out or not. Faith is a more open feeling. A sense of possibility. Not knowing, 
but having possibility. So that you can trust the propositions that are put forward. You don't know. How can we know what full awakening is like? But by sort of seeing the markers along the path, like, okay, what the Buddha said about this, that's actually turning out to be true. Maybe there's some other things that he said that are trustworthy. I remember going on a retreat with Sylvia Bornstein and um, her talking about her first retreat that she went on. And she said, well, I went on this retreat and they talked about these three characteristics, that there is suffering, that impermanence is the way of things, and that there was a not, that this not self. And she said, I could see that there was suffering and I could see that there was the possibility of freedom suffering. And I could see that they were right about impermanence, even if I didn't know it deep, completely. Not self, eh, well, they got two out of three, I'll keep coming back. So we take what we can and then we have kind of a, we leave openness. We are willing to be in a not knowing not knowing allows for new information. It allows for experimentation. It allows us to do something new and explore. And that's really a great opportunity. One of the ways I like to talk about practice is that we're playing with increasing our bandwidth. So this is a little bit of a graphic. So there's a bandwidth that we might function in in our regular life. And thing, you know, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, and it's in this bandwidth. And when something happens that pushes us out of our bandwidth, either it's harder or maybe even more joyous, but when it's outside of our bandwidth, our tendency is to try to alter circumstances to bring it back within the bandwidth that we know, to come back to what's familiar. And you feel that? How this is the zone that we know. In practice, we're doing something very different. We're making the invitation when something goes out of our bandwidth, instead of trying to push it back in, we invite the opportunity of stretching our bandwidth so that what was outside of it is now included. And each time we do that, we realize that, okay, this is outside of my bandwidth. This is uncomfortable, unfamiliar. This emotion that's arising in me, this restlessness, as Tara was talking about last night, you know, something that seems hard to work with. And then we go, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. And each time we do that, our bandwidth expands. And I would like to offer the possibility that awakening is that our bandwidth is limitless. Everything can be included. Nothing is to be afraid of. Nothing causes us to shut down. Everything is open and available. And to do this, we have to just keep trusting in the process, the steps along the way. A wonderful teacher, Elizabeth Matis Namgel, says, start developing a capacity for faith by being willing to experience whatever arises in your meditation practice. Rather than trying to control your mind, open to what arises without being swallowed by it. This is a practice. You will fail at it 10,000 times. No matter. Just keep going. And I'll mention, because you can hear it as I'm talking, that initially we have what's called 
bright faith or blind faith. We just trust that, okay, I'm going to give this a go. And then as it's confirmed, we start to have verified confidence. We start to go, yeah, this does work. Yeah, I can expand my, I can sit with this. I, oh, this is possible for me to be responsive in the world in a way that I didn't know I could do. Oh, I can tolerate difficult emotions without acting them out. Oh, I can see how my suffering is being created by the stories I'm telling. And as we do that more and more, then there's this settling, this abiding in confidence, an unwavering faith. An unwavering faith in ourselves, in the refuges. Remember how we started our first night saying, these refuges, and initially we take it on faith, and then slowly over time we realize this is worthy of our trust. I can put my confidence here. So I'll read you a little quote from the Buddha. He says, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these mental qualities are skillful, these mental qualities are blameless. These mental qualities are praised by the wise. These mental qualities, when adopted and carry out, lead to the welfare, to the welfare and happiness of myself and others. That's the confidence. So it's inviting a way of being in the world, being in the world where you allow for the uncertainty and the openness and you step forward and you keep stepping. And as you have this faith, this confidence, can you feel how naturally it is that a certain amount of energy arises? Like, I can do this. I'm up for it. This quality of energy, virya, is the word, and it can be translated as energy. And I'm going to say these words and see how they land with you. Different ones might resonate differently. Energy, strength, courage, persistence, having constancy, vigor, In a lot of ways, the whole direction of this energy is to have the courage to see our suffering and to free ourselves of it. That's what we want the energy for. To see ourselves and our actions clearly. To meet the moment as it is and respond to it skillfully. little poem from Rumi, in case you've had a little sleepiness this week, Rumi's suggestion. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where their two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. This is the invitation with the confidence and then the energy comes forward and we, we have that pull to go, to go into the next moment, to be awake, to be curious about it, to see what's here, 
it's not about even, it's not about striving for a goal and trying to make something happen. That's really important that this energy is alive and being responsive and here, not pushing for something else. That's a misuse of the energy. We have to find a way to find our balance with the energy, to have enough awakeness, aliveness, clarity in the moment, balanced with enough relaxation and ease that we don't get contracted. As someone who is a who has spent a lot of time on rivers in my life and has a strong relationship with rivers and water. I find it such a great analogy because when you're on a river and you're rowing a boat or paddling a kayak, you know, when the water is taking you somewhere and you want to use the flow of the river, you want to go where it's going. And it's wonderful to just paddle or row as little as is needed and to let yourself keep going. But if it's a river that's likely to have some white water, you don't fall asleep on the raft. You keep, you're relaxed and you stay alert and you just notice. And then you see something, you see a rock in the way. And so there's a need to respond. And then you put in some effort or it gets really tumultuous and you have to like navigate and try to figure out how to find your way through it. And it's challenging. And you do put in a lot of energy. And it's appropriate. But to row madly in the flat water wouldn't make any sense. I remember I used to live in uh, Jackson, Wyoming, land of uh, truly wonderful uh, skiers. And I had friends who we used to backcountry ski a lot. And I had friends who were just divine skiers. I would just look at them coming down the slope after I did my clumsy version of it. I sort of made it a lot of years in Jackson, just kind of surviving on my skis. And, um, I would look at my friends come down and it would just be like, there'd be all this powder and it was in the back country and they, they just looked like they were floating effortlessly down the slope. It was so beautiful, but you know that that effort, there was effort there, but there was such clarity about what effort was needed to meet the conditions. And that's in some ways what we're learning, finding the effort that meets the conditions. And how do we find that? You know the answer, by it not working, and then trying something else, and finding out if that works, and then trying something else until we find the balance that meets the conditions. Just like uh, Elizabeth said, failing over and over. The Buddha talked about finding this balance as the tuning of the lyre, um, like a stringed instrument that if it's too tight, it's like ding, 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 ding. And if it's too loose, it's just sort of limp. And that our practice, we want to get tune it just to the right level. It's good in this to notice if you have a tendency to over-effort or to under-effort. Sometimes we have a pattern. Every sit is different and you have to meet the conditions. But just to know, oh, I do have a tendency to like be in here and to go, okay, can I, can I do this a little bit more, uh, can I soften a little bit, do this a little with a little less effort? Sometimes we can use some of these other specific qualities, like 
we can use courageous effort. And we might use that by encouraging ourselves to sit longer, like the sit ends and we go, well, you know, actually I'm okay. I can just stay here. And it's a little bit of a step into the unknown or to do the walking longer or to let go of the wandering around during a lunch period and just stay in the practice, a kind of ardency, putting your courage is heart, right? That's what the word courage is of the heart. So putting your heart into it and having that even when it's uncomfortable, playing with the edge, not as a should, but out of interest, out of willingness. You can also, if you're pushing too hard, you can back up to just use perseverance, just a simple constancy in the practice, showing up again and again, just enough effort to be present. And to watch out for if the energy is getting hijacked by some effort to get to a goal or to get the conditions to be different than they are, to fix yourself or fix the outside world. So watch for that. And then it's time to redirect the energy to just meeting the present moment with attention and allowing the energy to bring joy. As Tara was bringing in, when we meet the present moment, when we're right there with it, you have all seen this at moments here, when we're right there with the present moment, It is quite wonderful, isn't it? If there's just enough energy and just enough attention with not a big push, and then at that moment you feel your body or you feel the breath or you see a tree or you feel the mist on your face. Just there. There's a series of, um, so balanced energy, let me say this first, balanced energy leads to wise effort, putting the effort in, in a way that's helpful. And there are four classic wise efforts that the Buddha offered. He said, what we want to do is let go of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Don't go chasing after things that are going to make you suffer, in other words. If the thought, thought starts to come into your mind about how something should be different, how you should be different, let it go. It's just going to lead to your suffering. Don't go there. That's a wise effort. Let it go. And he said also... Another wise effort is to let go of arisen states that are unwholesome that have already come to you. So if you're in a big aversion fit, I'm never, I don't like this. This was stupid. Where did I get this idea that coming on a meditation retreat was what I should do with these precious four days? You're in some big aversion fit. Then it's a wise effort to let that go to just come to the simplicity of the breath, to find something, you know, this is a good place to look up and gain faith in the, in some uh, statue or in a tree or in the fact all, all these people sitting together and let that unwholesome state, let it drift off. And then it's quite wonderful. The Buddha said, cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And like, that's what we do in our meditation all the time. We're cultivating the wholesome states of being present, of all these factors I'm naming. When we do the loving kindness practice, we're doing this, we're cultivating a wholesome state. That's a practice of wise effort. And to continue, he said, another, the last wise effort, to continue wholesome states that have already arisen. This is important because when we have a moment of calm or ease 
or just a settledness or heartfulness or compassion or all the different qualities that can arise that we can feel how wholesome they are. And when that happens, let yourself rest there. Even if it's outside your bandwidth, even if you're like, is this okay? Am I allowed to just, it's so calm. Shouldn't I be doing something now? I mean, is this okay? You know what? You probably have had this happen. If you haven't, you will. That it's like, shouldn't, shouldn't I do something now? I'm just sitting here and I'm like, just kind of happy. Something must be wrong, right? Just let it be. Just rest. And let your body and your system and your heart marinate in that goodness that is present. You don't need to do something else. You don't need to do something else. This brings us back to that uh, some of what uh, Howie was pointing to a couple of nights ago, that, you know, sometimes the practice is just carrying us along. There's no big effort needed at that moment. We can just go with what's here. And you might remember a few quotes from that free and easy, the Vajra song. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. And then further on, nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing is missing. When you have those moments, let them be. Encourage them. That's the fruit of your practice. And in that, you might notice Do I look lost? I am. Oh, we are found. So with that, uh, with that, what is happening is, can you feel how the energy leads naturally to being present, to being with what's here? Mindfulness arises. Sati in the Pali. Awareness, mindfulness, being right here. And as that deepens, as that deepens, the mindfulness itself is nourishing. And it opens our eyes. It's a wondrous experience to be truly mindful. This is from John Moffat, the poem, To Look at Anything. To look at anything, you would know that thing. If you would know that thing, you must look at it long. To look at this green and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. You must be the dark snakes of stems and ferny plums, plumes of leaves. You must enter in to the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time and touch the very peace they issue from. That's mindfulness, to be right there, to be, to be the thing that you see, that you feel, that you know, to let yourself drop into the sensations, the sounds, You've been doing this. You know that moment when the mindfulness is just right there. And this mindfulness, when we pay attention again and again with mindfulness, what happens is the concentration develops. Concentration is the result of successive moments of mindfulness. We don't make concentration happen. It arises as the result of these moments of mindfulness stringing together. 
So those moments can string together either by staying with one object, as we did at the beginning with your breath or your anchor. And then as Tara introduced this afternoon, when we open, or as we've sort of been opening up all the way, but we opened up fully, is when your attention starts moving from a sound to the breath, to a sensation in the body, to watching a thought goes by, as you do that, the concentration is continuing to develop because you're sustaining mindfulness moment after moment. So what allow the important piece in that to keep it going are two qualities that I want to share with you that are from the, the Pali Vitaka Vichara. And I'll translate that, of course. Vitaka is that moment when you recognize that you're making contact with something. Ah, there's the beginning of the inhale. Ah, there's the beginning of the exhale. So there's a moment when you recognize what's happening. The cultivation of concentration requires a second component, though. It's translated, the vichara is translated as sustained connection, sustaining. So you contact the beginning of the inhale and then you really let yourself feel it. I'm going to reach over here. I forgot to get the bell. One second. Because I want to do a little demonstration with you. See what it's like. I'm going to ring the bell and notice the moment when you first hear the bell and then what it's like to stay with that experience, to not skitter off into the next thing. And now maybe look at the bell and don't just go, oh, there's a bell. Look at it and take a moment to really see the bell. You don't need to describe it or have a story about it. Just let your eyes rest on it and see it for a moment. Now find a sensation in your body. Feel it. And stay there. This practice of connecting with something and staying with it. This is the mindfulness deepening, getting more uh, juicy and allowing the concentration to arise. So I encourage you to consciously let yourself rest with whatever you connect with. Just for a moment, it might only be a few seconds, but can you feel how different this is than skittering off, sort of like bouncing from one thing to the next? It's slowing it down and making full contact with the moment, with your experience, rubbing up against it and being intimate. And as we do this, the concentration deepens. And the Buddha says, practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. That's quite an invitation. And this leads us to wisdom, the big elephant's foot. Uh, Many years ago, I was in Dharamsala, the the, uh, 
place, the home of the Dalai Lama, and uh, sort of a root place of the uh, Tibetan community that has moved to India. And I had the privilege of of going to a talk that the Dalai Lama was doing. It was actually quite a small number of people. It was just a half day, and it was intended very much for the community there. And it was very interesting. He admonished, I have to use that word. He said, you are all here because you think that being here and seeing me and that somehow I am going to be able to do something for you. He said, I can't do it. I can't do your practice. You have to do your practice. You have to cultivate the wisdom. You have to sit and meditate. It was quite an admonition. And he was saying that to know wisdom, to know it on a full level, we have to embody it. We have to practice it ourselves. There's spoken of three levels of wisdom. The first one's talked, panya is the wisdom word for wisdom. And it, um, to know correctly is what panya means. But uh, sutta panya, which means the suttas, right? The teachings. So that's the wisdom that we get. That's what, that's what's happening right here. I'm offering you some sutta panya the the uh, wisdom that you can hear by listening, by reading, just sort of making it available to you. The next level of panya is what's called chintapanya, which is you reflecting on it, feeling as, and as I'm talking, there's probably some of that going on. There's some like resonating with some of it and going, oh yeah, I have that experience. Yep. Okay, this is kind of making sense to me. And then some of it, no, not so much that. And as we sort of immerse ourselves in our experience and the crossing of the Dharma with that, this chintapanya develops. The full level of wisdom is what's called bhavana panya, bhavana being cultivation, being practice. It's the wisdom that comes from our own practice. It's the insight, the understanding, the seeing for ourselves. Can you feel the relationship with this, that wisdom, and the confidence at the beginning? They reinforce each other. This wisdom then gives us the confidence to continue. And we see things as they really are. And it's a process. That's the thing. It keeps unfolding. We see the nature of the present moment. We see what's here. And we see how one moment affects another. We all come here with the desire to be happy. That's foundational. And what we're discovering is how do we get there? How do we free ourselves of suffering? And the way we do that is by, with that concentrated mind, seeing what's happening, see how a thought arises as a result from a body sensation maybe, and then we proliferate, and then we're in aversion and we're suffering. And then when we let go of that, there's a relaxation, a settling, and a calming. So we're watching, we're cultivating wisdom with this clear mind, seeing the unfolding of suffering and seeing the unfolding of freedom from suffering. That's the primary cultivation of wisdom. What causes you suffering and what frees you? And in this, we also see where impermanence, how it works, how when we resist impermanence, we suffer. It's another way that this comes up. When we try to make 
static, when we try to predict, when we try to control, it leads to suffering. And our clear mind allows us to see that. You have seen this again and again this week. You have seen with your clear mind where there is suffering. And when we see it, that's the first step to freedom. The Buddha says, this is from the Dhammapada, a fool with a sense of his foolishness is at least to that extent wise. But a fool who thinks himself wise really deserves to be called a fool. So we're getting rid of our foolishness by seeing our suffering, seeing it clearly. That is, nothing's gone wrong when you see that. That's the opportunity. And the last piece I want to share with you about wisdom is one of the ways the Buddha described wisdom is he said that we are not at the mercy of the simple pleasure principle, right? We make it beyond the amoeba that when it sees food, moves towards it. When it sees a predator, it moves away from it. We all have the same instinct as the amoeba, as every other animal does. But the opportunity in our practice with this clear seeing of wisdom is to learn through experience not to do in the present moment something, even though it might be pleasant, to not do it, even though it might be pleasant, if we see it's going to lead to our long-term unhappiness, if it's going to lead to suffering, to let go of the the what appears to be pleasant when we realize it's not. The third slice of chocolate cake looks pleasant, long-term suffering, at least for me. You know, uh, the telling a story in our mind about how we're right and that person who told us something, who said something to us, they were really bad and wrong. It feels like, yeah, I'm right. It's going to make us feel pleasant. Like that feels, there's like some satisfaction in that moment. It just leads to our suffering, doesn't it? What stories are we carrying around? What beliefs that lead to our suffering? But we, they're familiar and in that way they're pleasant. But can you let them go? And he also says, and this you're practicing a lot, to do in the present moment what might be unpleasant because you know it will lead to your long-term happiness and well-being. Welcome to meditation. <laughs> so I'm going to end with a poem by Judy Brown called Fire. And in this poem, see if you can hear and feel the... Um, the, these different five qualities. See if you can feel the confidence and the, uh, the wise use of energy and the attention and focus and the wisdom that arises. All just about making a fire. What makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tight, can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between as much as to the wood. When we are able to build open spaces in the same way we have learned to pile on the logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel and absence of the fuel together that make fire possible. We only need to lay a log lightly from time to time. A fire grows simply because the space is there 
with openings in which the flame that knows just how it wants to burn can find its way. This is our practice, to make space and allow the fire, the wisdom of fire to grow in us. Let's sit for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.